That's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting from verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. <clears throat> I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And the question before us is, how are we to understand these times in which we live? These times into which Felix and Alexander and Seb and Charlie have been born. They are confusing days in so many ways. We have war not too far away. What will the impact be on our security, 
on our economy, on our cost of living. There is political instability here in this country, so we ask who's going to be in power for how long? Society is changing rapidly. As they say, things aren't as they used to be. In the midst of all this then, how should we live? As we do go on with life, are we behind the times or ahead of the curve? Or are we even on the wrong side of history? Whatever that means. We ask, is time heading somewhere? Or will we forever go around in circles? Well, this afternoon we come to our third and final installment for us in this book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3. The writer of Ecclesiastes calls himself the preacher. And in this chapter, he focuses on time and on our place within it. He starts with time and history, time and history. So as the chapter begins, as we heard, the preacher breaks into poetry. And these words, verses 1 to 8, will be familiar to many. Many, in fact, you might not even know where they come from, that they're from the Bible. But they begin, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And the preacher goes on to describe the ebbs and the flows, the ups and the downs, the comings and the goings, the light and the shade of our lives and of our times. We see here actions mixed with emotions, what we do on our own and with others. There are rhythms and repetitions and the patterns of our experience, difference and contrast, and yet shaped by an order. There is a certain beauty to what he says. And as we read it or hear it, this poem does strike a chord with us. Many like to hear it. This is a description of life as we know it, from cradle to grave, a time to be born and a time to die. Today, we might add a time for baptisms with the corresponding a time for funerals. We sense, don't we, as we hear this poem, there is wisdom in this, we think. Surely, this is teaching us something. We agree, yes, there are times where we need to find the courage to speak up, where we need to know it's the time to be silent. There are times where action is needed, maybe even military action but also times to strive more for peace. So wisdom is clearly mixed in and needed, but then we notice the poem isn't prescriptive. It doesn't tell us what to do, which maybe accounts for the poem's popularity. But as we continue to listen, maybe we get restless. We ponder, what is this poem getting at? Where is it, if you like, heading? What is the message of it, if there is one? Or maybe we think the preacher just throws it out there for us to draw our own conclusions, to make of it what we will. Well, in fact, the preacher does have a very clear point to make, although most don't hear it because they stop at verse 8. That little heading there in verse 8 has been inserted by our Bible. In fact, it goes straight on, not surprisingly, to verse 9. The very next sentence then says, What gain has the worker from his toil? Do you sense the rhetorical effect? If we found this poem moving, maybe it lifted us and we began to think lofty thoughts about the meaning of life. Well, verse 9, that statement brings us hurtling back to earth. Oh yes, we do live through the seasons of verses 1 to 8. But when it does come to an end for us with our time to die, well, what then? 
what will have been the point of all these contrasting times and seasons we've lived through? What will have been the gain for us from all the effort we've put in? And by now, for those of us who've been reading Ecclesiastes, the answer is implied because we've had questions like this before. Right at the beginning of the book, the first question from the preacher was, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And we knew the answer and he drove it home for us. Ultimately, our toil, whether that's our paid work or whatever else we put effort into hoping to get something back, well, it just doesn't bring the returns that we want. So although this poem doesn't describe, well, it describes activities we might do, might be involved in, I wonder if you find as you read it also, you can read verses 1 to 8 with a certain detachment, as if we are looking in on all these seasons passing by. But that's actually a sobering thought. The point being, if we weren't there, it would still go on just as it did before. Which again, the preacher's getting into our skin. We won't have made any real difference at all. The word we've seen in Ecclesiastes, the preacher wants us to sense, is hevel. That's a Hebrew word, as he calls it. It comes up repeatedly. It's a word that literally means vapor or breath or mist or fog. And it describes our experience of life and of this world. So we think there is something here in life. But is there? Our life does seem to matter. But does it? Under heaven, is there meaning and significance to all this? We feel there must be, but hevel. The preacher's point, in fact, is if life under heaven, hevel, heaven, sorry, if life under heaven is all that there is, then in the end, there is no gain at all. That's the lesson of time and history. Well, next, it goes on to time and eternity. So we've had the poem of 1 to 8, the abrupt, if you like, ending of verse 9. But we want to keep listening. We want to hear more. So verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I wonder if you noticed there was mention of God, which again alerts us to who or what was missing from that opening poem. Of course, the times and seasons of verses 1 to 8, everything within them, all created by God. God made the greater and lesser lights in the sky, as Genesis calls them, the sun and the moon, to mark the days and the season. But still, the preacher had not mentioned God. But now he does. And he goes on to say in verse 11, he, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. We sense this, don't we? The orderliness, the movement, the wonder of the seasons of creation. We sense it's not just that we impose on it a beauty and an order. It is really there, apart from us. And that is true. Because in the beginning, God made it all good. Very good. And it turns out this beauty that we sense does point beyond us and our times. Verse 11 goes on to say, He has put eternity into man's heart. There is more. We sense it. We want to lay hold of it if we can, somehow. And yet, verse 11, he immediately goes on to say, he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we want to get our heads around this eternity that we sense is there, but we can't. In fact, as if we ever could. The point is, it's eternal. We are finite. 
There's no way we could get our heads around it. But that shouldn't lead to despair, says the preacher. Verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Here's a reminder. Do you remember people read or hear about Ecclesiastes and think misery, futility, emptiness? And there is something in that. But the aim of the book is to lead us to joy, great and deep joy. It was there at the end of chapter two. Do you remember? Joy is possible as we work. Not to say we'll be able to avoid all the brokenness of this world. We will experience something of its frustration and futility. But the writer is adamant there is joy deep and true to be experienced by us in our times. And now, building on last week, the preacher gives us a little pointer to what this joyful life will look like. And it might surprise us what he says the joyful life will look like. Look again at that verse. It will involve doing good. I wonder how that strikes you. It's that little phrase, we can easily add our own negative baggage. We can take that doing good to mean, oh yes, we've got to earn our way. Well, that can't be right. The preacher has made it really clear we can't gain anything for ourselves. Or maybe we think doing good, well, that means we're going to become a little goody two-shoes, have no fun, look down on everybody else. Again, no. As the preacher will explain, doing good should thrill our hearts such that it fills us with joy. Because it's a mark actually of those who know their God. They know that God is a good God, and so they delight to walk in his ways. We'll want to please God. So we'll listen to him. We'll know he knows far better than we do what makes us tick. And we'll realize that's the way to live in this world and with those around us. Now, those who don't know God will see this kind of doing good as sheer drudgery and slavery, restrictive. But actually, the preacher is saying, those who know God, well, this is what it means to be free, to be the people God created us to be. If you do good, well, in fact, you are then living in tune with the reality of all that surrounds us. So those who do good, they do it because they see the world and are placed within it differently because they know God. And so verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Again, the preacher knows what we're like. We are obsessed with making our work count, that we're going to do something that will achieve, that will make a lasting difference. Such a relief when you grasp the reality that what really counts is what God does. Because our creator is simply different to us. He is, to use a technical phrase, a big God. What God does will last forever. He gets it right and ultimately no one or anything else will get in the way. And when we begin to see how great God is, look what verse 14 tells us, we will fear him. Now don't think of fear that recoils in a servile terror, but rather a fear that delights in knowing this God, but is conscious that with his greatness and majesty, we can only respond with reverence and awe. In fact, a right fear leads to deep happiness because we have that desire to live God's way and to do what is good. 
Well, today is the final installment of our 4 p.m. series in Ecclesiastes. And you'll have noticed we've only got as far as chapter 3 out of 12. I think the 6 p.m. made it all the way. Well done then. But for us, I very much hope that we'll want to hear more of what the preacher has to say, to ponder it. And just to say as an advert, one way to do that, I know some are meeting with Matthew to read it through together. So if you'd like to join them, do chat to Matthew later. But what we'll find as we read on is some of the themes we've seen introduced in chapters one to three will be wrestled with more, teased through, worked out to understand better. And then right at the end of the book, we do get an executive summary of the message. And the penultimate line of the book is there printed on the outline to say, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That will be the joyful life. So time and history, time and eternity. Next, time and judgment. So we've just heard doing good is the right way to live. And actually there are times where everyone agrees that is right. There should be fairness and justice in our world. But that's not what we find as the preacher knows. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Well, isn't life beautiful? We saw that in the opening poem. But as we keep listening to that opening poem, we do sense the minor chords. There are pointers to where life is actually far from beautiful. The time for weeping, for mourning, a time to hate, a time for war. And it becomes clear life in this world is not as it should be, far from it. And now the preacher is thinking, yes, there's far more injustice than there should be. There's unrighteousness all around us, a prevalence of wickedness. And maybe in verse 16, the particular area that the preacher is focusing on is the law court. Because if you like, that is the particular place where we long for justice and righteousness. How awful it is when there is wickedness in that place. As we know, there are countries around the world where the populace, if they are wronged by the powerful, have no recourse to justice because of the corrupt judges. And even here in this country, court of justice on the Strand or the Old Bailey, miscarriages of justice are not unheard of. And this is one expression of an issue that actually, if you read on, the preacher will keep coming back to it. In our world, the righteous suffer the wicked prosper. Bad things do happen to those who don't deserve it. And the perpetrators of evil get away with it. No doubt we've all had experience of being on the wrong end of this. In fact, some will have lost money or respect or jobs or savings or lives. And all of this in the world just adds, doesn't to the sense of hevel, of futility. Lives are ruined. No one held to account. Notice here how verse 16 begins. He uses another of his favorite phrases. This is life under the sun. And he wants us to face the fact life under the sun just isn't fair. Which does mean that if life under the sun is all that there is, there is not a lot to be done. You can try and resist it if you can, but it won't always be possible. Just get used to it. It's the way that it is. But what if life under the sun is not all that there is? Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter 
and for every work. Notice that word, favored word in the chapter, time. The word that came up again and again in verses one to eight, a time to be born, a time to die, and everything in between. We also heard in verse 11, did you notice? Everything beautiful in its time. Well, why was it beautiful? Because there's a God who made these times, he's filled them and rules over them. But that's not all that God does these times we've seen so far. There is another time, a time not under the sun in the same way. And in particular, verse 17, there is a time, a day of judgment where God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Here is good news for us. Injustice won't win. The wicked won't get away with it. Justice will be done. And the preacher wants us to realize grasping that truth is vital for us to live rightly in the world, in God's world. We are to live all of life in light of that day that we know is coming. Let's look at the very last line of the book of Ecclesiastes, again printed on the sheet. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Knowing that makes sense of the times we live in now. So time and history, time and eternity, time and judgment, and finally time and work. So you look at verses 18 to 20, and it's a comparison between humanity and the beasts. Now for us, there's a time to be born and a time to die, as there is for the animals. And we need to take this seriously, that we are members of the animal kingdom. We share much with the rest of the animals. In particular, we will all end up in the dust as dust. But hearing that does raise the question, are we then merely animals? And some, maybe many, try to say that today, although very few actually live like it in practice because it's hard to swallow. But is there then this difference we perceive between animals and people? That's the issue in verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? The preacher wants to get us thinking. Yes, you have this feeling that there's a difference between man and animals, and it comes into sharp focus at death. Do we simply go into the earth to rot like the animals? Or do we, well, what? What's the alternative? Notice two key words at the start of verse 21. Who knows? Point is, these issues we've been raising, who knows the answer to these things? We know that we don't, really. But who could tell us? In fact, you may have been thinking the same in verse 17. The preacher said in his heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. But again, is that just his view, his feeling, his way of surviving, coping with life? Or was there more to it? How can we know? And one way to answer those questions is to read on, again, in Ecclesiastes. But as we do that, we'll also be spurred to read even further beyond Ecclesiastes, because the preacher here is raising questions to which he will give something of an answer but the fuller answer was yet to come. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, which we heard the end of read earlier, is a chapter all about the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, many of us looked at it together recently on a weekend away. Put simply, if that happened, if Jesus Christ physically rose again from the dead and the historical evidence is there that he did, 
Well, that changes everything. And it brings into sharp focus what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to see. We've looked at the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. Here are the final two verses again of 1 Corinthians 15, as on the sheet. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Ecclesiastes describes the brokenness of our world. The world is crooked. And as we've read on, we've realized the problem isn't just out there. The crookedness is within each one of us. Despite all our attempts, there's vexation and sorrow and futility remains. And all will end in death and then this time and day of judgment. The preacher later in Ecclesiastes tells us not one person on earth is righteous, all sin. Well, combine that with his assertion there's a day of judgment. It does not bode well. But... Jesus. You look at Jesus and he lived that life of doing good perfectly. And he died, but he died for the reason of taking on himself that sin and death of others. So then when he rose again, it showed us death is defeated. It's lost its sting. Death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice along the way that confirms us that we can know there is a day of judgment. How? Well, because we know who the judge is. He's alive. And one day everyone who's ever lived will stand before him to give an account. Wonderfully, all of us who now know Christ will rejoice because we are safe and secure for that day. Not because of our toil in any way, but because of the work of Jesus at the cross. But if all this is the case, what then follows for us? Well, notice the conclusion at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We've seen Ecclesiastes has much to say about work and labor and toil and effort. The preachers bring this drum that our toil, if it's to gain for ourselves, is in vain. There will be nothing to show for it in the end. And yet, those who know God are free to enjoy their work. Yes, still some frustration and futility. We don't invest our hopes in our work. But we know it's a gift from God, and so we enjoy it. The question is, what then work will we do? Now, some of us will have little choice in the tasks we have to fill each day with, and all that will have value as it is done for the Lord. All our efforts are to be done to please him above all. Although we will have this focus that we saw in Ecclesiastes on doing what is good, listening to what God says, and in particular having a focus on the good of others. Well, how do we work for the good of others? When it comes to others, we can divide humanity to two groups because the preacher in Ecclesiastes has done it. Do you remember? It was there in chapter 2. There are the sinners, those who don't know God, and those who please God, who know him. Or in other words, those who reject Christ and those who trust in him. So given the way the preacher has set it up, how can we do good to each of those groups? How can we abound in the work of the Lord towards them? 
And in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us help with this. He gives us a particular focus for what our work for the Lord will look like. So when it comes to sinners, Paul says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ came into this world to do this work of saving, of rescuing sinners. His death and resurrection achieved it in full. But now we imitate Christ and Paul by doing all we can to play our part in this message of Christ's death and resurrection going out to all the world. So that's the work with sinners, with those who reject Christ. But what about the work with believers? And again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians answers that question. He says that we are to strive to excel in building up the church. What that means is the church is people, believers. We are to do what we can to help them to know God, to hear his voice, and to live for him. So in summary, that is the heart of the work of the Lord, which we are to abound in. Even this sort of work will have its expression of frustration and futility. But the world will tell us those two categories of work actually are pointless. They will tell us devoting your life to make Christ known, to help fellow believers, is utter vanity. Not just a little, but complete waste of your life. You're missing out on what is good. You should work towards other things. You should gain all this life has to offer. And yes, at times, gospel ministry will really feel like that utterly futile. But Paul wants us to know the opposite is true. As he puts it here, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Despite what the world thinks, here is something we can give ourselves to wholeheartedly, knowing that despite appearances, the effects will last into eternity. So what time is it well, as those who know God, we know this creation is heading somewhere. And therefore, it's a time now to be joyful, to do good as long as we live. Because we know the victory is ours in Christ. Death is defeated. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, we do so thank and praise you that the times in which we live, these seasons are all in your hand. And we thank you for all your works, supremely in Christ, which cannot be added to or taken away from. Thank you that therefore, because of Christ, we can look to the future, even to the time of judgment with confidence. And so with that security, would we now be joyful as we abound in this work you've given us to do? in the light of the day that is to come, would we work for the eternal good of others for your glory. Amen.